We are uh, studying 1 Peter, and we're calling this series Weird. There ought to be something weird about our lives. There ought to be something supernatural about our lives. That word weird, it means supernatural. It means uncanny. There ought to be unique, something unique, something different, something odd about our lives as believers. And uh, we are in verse 17 today, con- continuing, as we said, verses 13 through 21, which really is, is, a, is one thought in the Greek. Verses 3 through 12 were one long sentence there we showed, and it was understanding what God had done. The, the indicative, if you will, the indicative in the Greek is you always see the writers of Scripture, you always see God put that first. He the, it tells you what God has done. And then the writer explains how we as believers are to respond. And and in the Greek, that would be the imperative. The writer indicates to you what God has done and then explains what the imperative, how do we respond to what, what, what God has done. And last week we talked about living with a sense of preparedness, a sense of alertness, a sense of holiness, about our lives. Why? Because our Father is holy. He says that in verses 15 and 16. That word holiness, it means set apart. There's a, there's a set apartness about our lives. Even that, we're different, uncommon. And it's all rooted in our identity as the people of God, in our, in our having been adopted into the people of God. As believers, understand that we are the people of God. We have been adopted into the people of God through faith in Christ, seeing Him as the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the the propitiation, if you will, that God, in, in, in forgiving our sins through the blood of Jesus, that God can now be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Why? Because Christ paid the penalty that was due sin, death. In faith, faith is me seeing Christ as my substitute. As a Christian, I am looking to Christ as my substitute. He died where I deserve to die. God, in throwing all of His wrath, all of His condemnation onto Christ, judging sin, now can forgive me and forgive whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord and repent of their sin and plead, beg Him, ask Him for forgiveness can be saved. Why? Because Christ bore God's wrath in our place. God can forgive you and be totally just in doing that. Why? Because Jesus died in your place. He was your substitute. That's faith. We've been separated from God due to our sin. Reconciliation. How would reconciliation take place? God initiated that, planned that. He says before the foundation of the world, we'll see it again today. And He saved us. He made a way for His creation to be reconciled back to Himself. And the only way, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 10, Jesus says, I'm the door. The only way you get into the sheepfold, the only way you get into the family of God is through faith in Christ. The people of God. And as the people of God, how then are we to live? We've said this is a response 
to your identity. And he calls us, Peter immediately calls us to holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy. You, are, you shall be set apart. Why? Because God in the Old Testament, he was set apart. He made it very clear that he was different from all the other false gods. All the other so-called gods, the one true God of the Bible was set apart. And he's saying, you, my people, be set apart. Not only in how you worship, but how you live. And he said, be holy. And everything we see today in verses 17 through 21 really is building on what does it look like to be holy? What does it look like to be set apart? And you see the main point there. Again, all going back to our identity. We should be holy by living, in a, a li- living our lives in reverent fear of God, who is both Father and Judge, and yet living in gratitude for having been redeemed. The word is redeemed. You have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Not by things that are perishable. By something more precious, than e- more precious than even silver or gold. By the precious blood of Jesus. And what Peter does here is he offers both sides, really, to how we are to live holy. A, a negative side, if you will, and-, and a positive side, if you will. Look what he says in verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited for your forefathers, but with precious blood as the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter gives two sides here to our response and our pursuit of holiness. And, And the first thing he says is in response to who we are as children of God and our response to live holy, he says, live in reverent fear of God who impartially judges all people. Reverent fear. Peter does something very important here. I think if we were honest and I asked you, I want you to list your favorite, I want you to give your favorite characteristic of God, your number one characteristic of God. I would bet most of us in the top three would have love. I would bet none of us in here would write judge. None of us in here would write wrath. And Peter, Peter balances. If we said, give me a title for God, most of us, many of us, somewhere early on would write Father. I bet very few of us would write Judge. When you pray at night, Father, thank you for being a judge. No, thank you for being a father. That's just where our minds gravitate, where our lives work. And we love to refer to God as Father, and that is an awesome thought. And that is an awesome privilege. And Peter is building on that thought and privilege that we looked at last year. But Peter expands our understanding of God. He takes us beyond. It goes deeper into the identity as father. There is something more to the parent-child relationship and salvation 
then we like to think about God is not only Father, listen, God is also Judge. And this privileged life that we live as believers also comes with responsibility. And Peter says, you see it on your handout, the same one we address as Father is also the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. You see it there in 17. In light of him being a father who, who disciplines, he judge, he's going to judge, conduct yourselves in fear. The, the word impartial here, it's a key word. It go, it's, a, it's a word that goes beyond mere appearances. He judges based on how things truly are. Even 1 first, uh, first Corinthians 4 talks about it, even down to our motives. Even down to our motives. He plays no favorites. Nobody gets a pass due to something that they've done or something they are. All of us, all of us will stand before God and we will give an account for how we live our lives. And listen, listen to Romans 14. There's a couple different, many places we could go. But in Romans 14, again, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Again, he's speaking to believers. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, again, Paul is writing. He says, for we must all appear, starting really verse 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. If, if we go to Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews makes an important statement. He says, For this reason we must pay close attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, he's really referring to the Old Testament there, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see the emphasis on stewardship? Do you see the emphasis on how we steward our lives? How we respond to grace? Not a work salvation. This is a response. This is how a person ought to live, is called to live, commanded to live as the people of God. Not to get into the people of God. That's by grace through faith. As the people of God. Listen, you and I as believers... We will not receive condemnation to our sin as Christ was our substitute. Christ received that condemnation. Christ received that wrath. But we will be judged on how we stewarded our lives as believers. The point Peter is making is that God's character, his, our salvation doesn't, doesn't provide, doesn't allow for a laxity when it comes to how we live. Go to chapter 6 of Romans. Should sin be your master? He says, by no means. We're dead to sin. Live to Christ. Grace, grace does not lower the bar for how we live as believers. It actually fuels it. Salvation doesn't usher in a laxity in how we pursue holiness and how we live as the people of God. That's Peter's point. 
He's saying you live in a way that one day God is going to evaluate your life. Your father is going to evaluate your life. Did you, did you live to the glory of God? How did you build upon Christ's foundation? What did you build with? What did you build your life upon? He is our loving father. Listen, but he is also our impartial judge. Listen, we can climb up on his lap and you know that we will, he, will tenderly, he will tenderly welcome us. But that privilege doesn't afford us to live how we want to, however we want to live. Listen, Bradley and Sarah Grace call me their father. They're, they're, nothing's going to jeopardize that, but that does not allow them to live however they want to live. There are standards. There's an expectation. Grace is not to be presumed upon. Grace is not to be taken advantage of. It's funny, uh, the other day there's a new song out and I was, we were listening to it and I was struggling with the lyrics and uh, as usual. Um, it's a song called Grace Got You. Um, and he's, he's talking about laugh like you got away with something because you got away with something. And I just have a hard time with that. I don't know what his heart is. We're just, we have these conversations internally in our car until I make them external in front of you. Um, so Sarah Grace, Sarah Grace, she wanted to argue with me about it. She's like, well, Dad, I think you need to look at it this way. And I'm like, you know what, that's, a, that's one way to look at it. And she says, finally, I know more than you. I'm like, well, you're wrong, but I'll just keep that quiet. Keep that between us. And I don't know what, I'm not trying to judge their heart. I just, I have a hard time. I, I do not want to ever take advantage of grace. I think God's grace comes with a, a demand upon my life to live to his excellencies, as we'll see in 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9. By grace, we've been called into his people We've been adopted in his people, and yet we have been done. We have done, that has happened to us so that we would declare the excellencies of the one whom we call Father. To declare his excellencies, to live for his glory, to, to, to live according to his upside down ethic that his kingdom comes with. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The greatest among you shall be the least. If you want to be great among my kingdom, be the least. If you want to be exalted in my kingdom, then die. God's kingdom comes with an upside-down ethic. Why? Because it made to make much of Him. Because in Him we have found something so valuable, so awesome, it's worth losing everything that this world has to offer. It's worth losing all of that. Why? Because we've gained something so much greater. It's Matthew 13. It's like the man who found a treasure in the field, and he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. From the world's standpoint, he looks like a fool, except that he knows what's in the field. He understands what's in the field. The world will say, that's weird, you're selling everything to buy a field? Yep, I got this hunch. No, no, you found something. By, by God's grace, he's, uh, he's, he's unblinded, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, your eyes to the gospel. Live to the glory of the one who has saved you. That's what Peter is saying, who, who you will give an account one day for how you steward grace. He says, if you address the Father as one, that the word there in the Greek could be since. Since you call God Father, live in reverence of him. 
And this is what it looks like to pursue holiness. It's living in reverent fear. God hates sin. No matter who commits it, He hates sin. And understanding God's hate for sin ought to cause us to be a people that runs from sin, not runs to sin and just just assumes or presumes upon grace. We ought to run from sin. That's why he says in verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The word conduct yourselves, it's the same phrase you see in verse 16, be holy as as, as your father is holy. Be holy in all your behavior. Same phrase. In verse 18, he translates it way of life. What God has called us to, you see it there, the work, if you will, God has called, that is, He is going to judge, is, is your entire way of life. How did you live as a believer? How did you conduct yourselves in this world as a believer? And Peter is saying, live in light of that fact that you will stand before your Father as judge one day and give an account for how you stewarded grace. Again, he says, during your time, your stay, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That, that word is the same word that is, that is translated aliens. During this short period of time on earth, live weird. Live differently. In Acts 13, 17, same word is used to refer to Israel's um, captivity in Egypt. Peter is saying, in light of this short stay on earth, and, and when you compare that to eternity, because you're here temporarily, because this is not your home, do not settle in as if it were permanent. Do not settle in to the ways of the world. Do not adopt the ways of the world as your own, because this is not your home. Your citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. That makes you aliens here. And while you're here, pursue the character of your Father, which is holiness. Live in fear of the character of the greatness and the awesomeness, reverent fear of your Father while you're here. And the fear that Peter speaks of, it's it's not this paralyzing dread or terror. It's it's the idea of knowing that you're going to give an account, that you're going to be accountable for how you lived your life. In, two, in chapter 2, verse 18, Peter uses this term. In 3.2, three, three, in 3.14, in 3.15, this is a theme throughout Peter's letter. You're going to give an account, believer, for your life. You, you see that in 2 Corinthians 5.11. We looked at verse 10. You see that in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Jesus refers to it in Matthew 10.28. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 1.7. For this is fear, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. That theme is all throughout the Bible. Peter uses it, Paul uses it, Jesus uses it, the Old Testament uses it. And this biblical fear, it is a, you'll see it on your handout, it is a reverential awe. It is an awe of God. It is an awe of being privileged position in which we stand, of being a child of God. It's, it's, what, it's what really what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He says, I am an undone man. I am of unclean lips. And he fell on his face in awe of seeing the greatness, the awesomeness, the holiness of God, the privilege of being called his child. 
You know, and, and again, it would be like when I was in college and the professor would say, hey, and at the end of the semester, there's going to be a final exam. There were some who would goof off all semester and then about a, the night before the, a night before the exam, they'd scurry around frantic, cramming for the exam, trying to get ready, and they would walk into the exam really unprepared and unsettled. That's not what we're talking. And some of us, some people may try to live their Christian life that way. The other part, the other people would say, okay, if I've got to read a 500 book, a page book and the exam's going to be there and I've got three weeks to do it, every week I know I need to read this many, every week I know I need to read this many pages and you would walk into the exam. Still, still in awe of the exam, there was a level of fear about the exam, but you, you, you were prepared. You were prepared to walk into the exam. You, you lived in awe knowing that one day there was an exam coming. And, and I would argue that's a better picture of, of what Peter is trying to explain. Live in, live in light of the fact that one day you and I believe are going to give an account for our lives and, and how we stewarded grace. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul deals with this. For no one, verse, starting verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. Listen, okay, the foundation is Christ. Then he says in verse 12, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, that judgment day, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Listen, if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Listen, I'm not pretending to know exactly what that looks like. I'm not pretending to know exactly what the different rewards will look like. But I do know it's in the Bible, and I live in fear of that. I live in awe of that. That one day, my life, how I stewarded grace, how I stewarded my life, God is going to judge me on that. Hold me accountable. I'm going to give an account for how I lived my life as a believer. And I don't want to get into heaven with the smell of smoke, let's say, like it says there. By the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, I guess you might say. I, I, my goal, our goal, is to live in such a way that what we build lasts. Namely, the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. Live to make much of the God who has saved us. That's the call. In Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please God. Listen, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and listen, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Live for the reward. Seek the reward. Pursue the Lord. I, I, I was reading a commentary this week, and the, the guy wrote this, he says, I suppose in Peter's days, as in our days, there were people that so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other, and who so magnified the thought of the Father that they forgot the thought of judge. That, er that error has been committed over and over again in all ages, so that the church as a whole, one may say, has gone swaying from one extreme to the other and has rent these two conceptions widely apart and sometimes has been foolish enough to pit them against each other instead of doing as Peter does here, braiding them together as both conspiring to one result, the production of the Christian heart of a wholesome awe. Father and judge, that ought to create awe. 
live in such a way that we would make much of our God. That author wrote that over 100 years ago, but it's no different today. There was a day when, when God was primarily viewed as judge versus loving father. And now today, the pendulum has spun, swung way over here where we speak to him as loving God. And he's just this kind of grandfather-esque figure that no matter how you live, he's going to take you up and just say, Oh, I'm so grateful that you chose me and I'm so grateful. No, no, unbiblical. We're the ones who ought to be grateful. We're the ones who ought to live in awe of having been chosen, of having been adopted. But we've got to balance that. Yes, God is a loving Father, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. But He's also judge. He loves us, yes, but He hates our sin. Grace, yes, but we're going to give an account. How do we build? How did we construct our lives based on our identity in Christ? We are to live in holy reverence because the Father also is the judge. And we need a right understanding, a complete, full, right understanding of God. We need to view Him rightly. We can't focus on one characteristic that we like better to the neglect of another. Listen, all of God's character traits amount to his, here's the word, perfection. Perfection. From loving father to impartial judge, all of his character amount to his perfection. Even his wrath, his hatred of sin, he's perfect in that. And Peter is saying, we'll, we'll never truly grasp or enjoy the love of the father unless we love to learn to live in light that one day He will judge. We will give an account for our lives. How did we steward not only the salvation, but the resources that He has given us? How did, we, did we live for His kingdom, or did we live for our own? And, and you see parables all throughout. You see stories all throughout the Bible that speak to that. What did you do with the talents, if you will, that God has given you? The resources that God has given you. How did you build? Part of what we, as pursuit of holiness, is living in reverential awe of God. Be in awe of God, amazed. But, but secondly, Peter says, starting in verse 18 and 19, we, we're to live in deep gratitude towards God, who has redeemed us by the precious blood of Christ. Knowing, again, knowing this is like the same side of the same coin, the other side of the same coin, rather. Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The positive, again, the positive, this is, if you will, the positive side. Our reverence is not only sourced in fear and awe, but it's also sourced in deep gratitude for what God has done. He says, knowing, knowing. The word there is, it, it, it has a tendency, to, it speaks to our tendency to forget. That, that's why Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this blood, do it in remembrance of me. Why? Because we tend to forget. We tend to drift. And what is the one thing that he says, do not forget? The high price of our redemption. 
that we were not redeemed with, with perishable things like gold or silver. We were redeemed, believer, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Think about that. You know, I, I, in my office, there are pictures of my family. Why, why are they there? Be, they just remind me of my family. Reminds me of the love. Reminds me of the fellowship I have with them. That, that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing when we're in the Word. That's what we're doing when we're studying the Word. That's what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. Reminding ourselves the high price of our redemption. And the gratitude that ought to flow from that. All throughout Scripture you see the theme of ransom. Matthew 20, 28. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, He says the same thing. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to seek and save that which was lost. Reconciliation. We saw it last week. So much of what Peter writes points back to Israel's exodus from Egyptian slavery. And in their minds, they would have known better than us the idea of, 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 of redemption because slavery was an enormous part of that culture. It was an enormous part of the culture. When they gathered to worship, they would have gathered, freedmen and slaves would have made up the same congregation. And Peter gives us here some, some aspects of redemption that I want to point out because it, it speaks to us and our own salvation and hopefully it, it fuels our gratitude. But the first thing is redemption. The fact that you and I have redeemed, been redeemed, it implies bondage. You don't get redeemed unless you're in bondage. You do not get ransomed unless you are in captivity. The fact that you and I, believer, have been redeemed, it implies that, that in sin we were in bondage. We were not free men to do as we want, as much as we were foolish to think that. We were captive. And, and, and bond, redemption, it's not, it's not simply this big, high-level, churchy, theological term. It is rich with meaning. Especially in this, in, this, in this environment in which Peter wrote, the culture that he wrote. Because many slaves in, the, in, that, in, the, in that empire, they had become Christians. And again, the church gatherings would have involved current and former slaves. And they would have, they would have become slaves through a myriad of reasons. It could have been debt. It could have been that they were, that it could have been a myriad of reasons. But they were slaves. They were not free to do what they wanted to do. They belonged as property to another person. And the slave was in bondage and he felt it. And Peter is reminding his readers that Christ's redemption has delivered them from the bondage that characterized their former way of life. Because in that day, you could be bought, you could be freed, and they would set you free and it would be the purchase price. And many times it was gold or silver would have been the purchase price that would have set a slave free. You see what Peter is saying? Many of his readers would have been set free through the purchase of, of, of their freedom through gold or silver. And he's saying, you as a Christian have been purchased by something even more precious than that. The blood of Jesus. Your freedom did not come without a cost. I mean, imagine in that day a slave... Going, living as if they were still a slave, even though they had been free. And Peter says that. Don't go back to your feudal, former way of living. New life. You have been called. You have been redeemed. You have been saved out of the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, 12, and 13, into the glorious kingdom of light. Live in light of that new kingdom in which you live. 
Don't go back to the feudal way of life. We saw that last week in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, I implore you, no, do not walk as the Gentiles walk. In 4.18 and 17, do not walk as you used to walk as Gentiles in the futility of your mind. That's why Romans 12.1 and 2 says, Be re- therefore have your minds renewed. It's a new way of thinking. You're free, but you're free to serve Christ today in a way that you were not free yesterday when you were not saved. And even in, even in Old Testament, they would set, slaves would be set free. And if they had a good master, they oftentimes would put an awe in their ear. And, and they would drive a wooden stake in that person's ear. And that person would then go back and serve his slave owner. And he would do everything that he once did, but he would do it in joy. Why? Because he was free. And what that awe said was, when you saw that slave and he had an awe in his ear, it told you, I serve a great master. And I voluntarily submit myself to that master. Think about that picture. You and I have been set free to now serve a new master who is glorious, who is holy. And it's a privilege. That slave in that day served out of privilege. You and I, believer, we serve, we are slaves to God through Christ, but it is a privilege. Even in Exodus, we've seen it in Exodus 8, in Exodus 9, the very first verses, he says, I hey, Set my people free, why? So that they may serve me. We haven't been set free to self. We haven't been set free to sin. We've been set free to God. We've been adopted into His family, believer. And Peter is saying that Jesus Christ offers us a better exodus from the, from the feudal way, the endless. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. He says that knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The, the freedom, we've been, we've been exited, we've been freed, we've been redeemed from the futility of life that came with sin, that we eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. No, we, we live today because tomorrow we live. Even though we die, we live. We've been set free from the futility even of life itself. Of serving simply, of just living for self. We've been redeemed, not with the blood of a lamb spread over the doorposts of your home. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, God's Son, God Himself. They're equal with the Father. We've been redeemed of having His blood applied to the doorframes of our lives. It's a new exodus. Not to self, to God. And Jews in Peter's day would have recited year after year all these festivals, all these remembrances of what God had done for them in their lives. All the festivals, all the feasts, all those things were geared around helping Israel not remember God's past faithfulness. Of not forgetting who they were and how they got here. And one of the reasons some of us may live shallow Christianity is because we don't feel deeply enough the bondage that we were redeemed from. We don't, we don't readily admit the bondage that we were enslaved to as sinners. You've been redeemed from death, from hell, from eternity apart from God, believer. You've been redeemed from that. And our culture doesn't help. We help, help. it doesn't... 
We enjoy a good way of life. We have a high standard of living. We, in Christianity, Christians come along and say, you want to receive Jesus as your Savior? You want an abundant life? And people are like, well, I have a pretty good life now. What, what am I redeeming for? No, no, no. Sin. Hell. Wrath. Condemnation. You don't, you don't, those are not fun terms to talk about. You don't, you don't, those are not going to be the top five ways to build a church. Talk about hell and wrath and condemnation. But they're biblical. And we'll never appreciate, we'll never appreciate where we are until we appreciate where we were. We'll never appreciate um, what we have until we realize what we were redeemed from. And the high price of our redemption And Peter talks about gratitude. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm, not try- I'm just simply telling you what the Bible says. Understand the, the redemption that you've been redeemed. That you were in bondage to sin, futility, headed for hell, separation from God. And here comes Christ and offers redemption. Joseph Parker, he's a, he's a 19th century London pastor. He wrote this in, in a, in a uh, he was pre, in a, uh, I believe it's a sermon entitled The Precious Blood of Christ. This is what he says, where there is no conviction of sin, conviction amounting to the very anguish of the lost in hell, there can be no felt need of so extreme a remedy as is offered by the outpouring of the blood of Christ. He goes on to say, when a man feels that he has not sinned deeply, he is in no mood to receive what he considers the tragic appeals of the gospel. But when he feels that he has sinned and he is deserving of hell, lost and damned, then his need can be met by nothing other than the sacrificial, personal, precious blood of Christ. Again, why you see in Scripture prostitutes and tax collectors and the lame and the sick repenting and turning Christ for salvation and yet the religious leaders ignoring it is a sense of sin, an understanding of unworthiness, pride. Why did the Pharisees not repent? Pride. Why did they not turn to Jesus? Because they felt they had no sin to turn away from. The fact they condemned Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners very implication meaning that they weren't one. And it's only when we understand what we've been redeemed from that we can live with gratitude currently. That we've been released from bondage. And listen, that's weird. Trust me, that's weird. But not only does it imply bondage, redemption involves a price. Immediately when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He killed an animal and he clothed them. It's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of the cost of sin. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system. You know what? You know what? All the blood showed that sin is costly. That sin always demands death. It brings with it death. All throughout the Bible, you see Jesus Christ as the perfect Passover lamb. You see that in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Listen to what he says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, 
How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God. What did, what did lambs do in the Old Testament? They died. They died. They gave up their lives and they shed their blood for the, for the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost by giving up His life, giving up His precious blood, so that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would have their sins washed, that though they were as scarlet, Isaiah 118, they could be white as snow. Psalm 103.12 says that He came to separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Because Jesus Christ paid the price. My Egypt and your Egypt may look different, but as sinners, you and I are in need of the same ransom, and we have that available in Christ. He is the Passover lamb. The transfer of taking you out of Egypt into God's family. Into an eternal Canaan, if you will. Promised land. But the price had to be paid, and it was Christ's life. But not only was it bondage, and not only does it imply a price, listen, redemption was planned by God. I'm not getting into the whole, all this called and predestination, all that. Look, I've, got enough, I've taken enough emails on that. I'm not saying i got to figure it out. We're going to spend the rest of our lives battling. But listen, Peter makes it very clear. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared to us in the last days. Here's what I do know. Redemption was planned by God. It was not an accident. Listen, God planned the way of redemption before we ever sinned. Before the foundation of the world, he says in 120. The cross was not God's last minute plan. It wasn't reaction. It wasn't, oh, let me hurry up and fix this. The cross was not an accident. God paid our redemption deliberately. He paid it deliberately. But redemption was also of God because God executed the plan at the proper time. He says, in these last days. If you go to Galatians 4, 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God gave us Christ. God is executing His plan perfectly as He planned it. Man didn't vote on it. We didn't elect Jesus as Messiah. God sent Him and revealed Him to be the Messiah. But redemption is of God because also God applied it to us. Not, because he, not only because He planned it, it was before we ever sinned, it was executed at the proper time, but God applied it to us. He says in verse 20, For the sake of you who through Him are believers, by faith God applies Jesus' blood to your life, and you can be forgiven of your sin. If you're a believer in here, that's what faith is. Seeing Jesus Christ as your substitute, that Christ died for your sake. It was personal. A God-given grace gift, a privilege, the privilege. But redemption is also of God because God completed it by raising Christ who raised Him from the dead, verse 21, and gave Him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Christ's resurrection vindicated Him as the Messiah, but it also proved that God was able to raise the dead. And if He was able to raise Christ from the dead, He's able to raise you and I from the dead. 
And even if we suffer as Christians, even to the point of martyrdom, we can know that he can raise us from the dead and he has promised to raise us from the dead. John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die even though he may die. It's a promise. Why? So that our faith and our hope, and not in circumstance, it's not in the flesh, it's not in, it's not in the things of this world, it's in a God who is able to raise the dead. Paul says that same thing in 2 Corinthians 1 about his trials and his circumstances. He says, why? So that I would not trust in the flesh, but instead in a God who is able to raise the dead. That our hope would be in God. He says, in, again, indeed, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of the death and will deliver us, in whom we have set our hope, and He will deliver us. That's the hope. No matter what we go through, no matter what we battle, no matter, again, Peter is writing to Christians who are being persecuted and suffering, and here's what he says, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, knowing that that same God will raise you from the dead. He will vindicate you one day, just as he vindicated his son. In our own resurrection. And in light of that great redemption, in light of being redeemed from the bondage of sin, in light of being adopted into the people of God, in light of the high cost of your adoption, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, in light of, in light of the ultimate glorification one day, here's what he says, live holy, live in holy reverence of that one God that has done all that on your behalf. Live in reverence. But live in fear that one day you're going to give an account for how you stewarded this life. See the high price of our redemption. And seeing that ought to motivate us to steward it well, to live in the overflow of the gospel. Knowing that if Jesus' blood has been applied to your life, God's judgment, His wrath due our sin will pass over you. And He has made that available. Whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord, saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God, do your sin. Saved from the judgment of God. And yet, believers, there's a beam of seat judgment where we will give an account for how we live our lives. Live in light of that. Steward your lives in light of that. In fear, in reverence, but in gratitude. 